A ruler will come ancient and strong. We're going to talk about that this morning. The past two weeks, we've looked at Jesus coming as our prophet and Jesus coming as our priest. And this morning, we look at Jesus coming as our true king. There was a a huge crowd that had gathered around, and everyone was uh, excited and amazed. There had not been a king in the land in some time, and, and everyone was hoping that today would be the day that they would finally find the right rightful king. And so the crowds cheered and booed as knights and men walked toward the rock that stood in the middle of the square, each grabbing at the sword that was stuck in the stone, attempting to pull it out. And each one, no matter how strong they were, the sword, as you know, would not budge. And after the spectacle was over and each man had come and tried to pull the sword out, putting their legs up and giving it all that they had and not even it twinging a little bit, the spectacle was over and people had begun to disperse from the town center. But there was this young squire who had misplaced his knight that he served sword. And he was looking around everywhere for the sword, and he couldn't find the sword. And he knew that if he lost his knight's sword, that he was in deep trouble and might lose his job. And finally, he looked out and noticed this sword sticking out of this rock in the middle of the square. And no one was around. No one was looking. And so he thought he might go borrow that one until he could find his master's sword. And so he walks up to the sword that is placed in the stone, easily just pulls it out of the rock, and goes and begins to try to hand it to his master the night, but someone notices and someone sees this happen. He sees this squire pull the sword from the stone so easily, and they say, we have a new king. Long live the king. The legend of King Arthur might be one of the most well-known legends about a king in history. There have been so many versions of the tale, so many books and TV shows and movies, because we love the idea that King Arthur brings. The sword and the stone, which would reveal a king of pure heart who is worthy to rule. A king who would unite the broken and divided kingdom. A king who would build a round table and give his fellow knights equal rule and authority with him is unheard of. A king who would capture the hearts of his people. And after Arthur, King Arthur died, the legend continued. You see, Arthur came to be known <clears throat> as the once and future king. The king who at any moment could return to reclaim his throne in Camelot and unite and lead his kingdom once again. This legend has stood the test of time because we all long for a worthy king to come and lead us. We all long for a king to come and unite our world, a leader whom we could trust and follow, a king who could capture our hearts, a king who we could truly believe in, a king who we would be honored to give our lives in service to. Deep in our hearts, we long for this kind of king. And I think that is why there are tons and tons of stories about good kings who come to slay dragons and rescue princesses. 
kings who come to to unite divided lands and capture hearts. Like we just sang, we want a king on a throne with a sword in his fist. Will there ever be a king like this? You see, in the Old Testament, God's people were always longing for a king. When we come to 1 Samuel, Israel had existed for several hundred years without a king. They needed no king because God was their king. But that wasn't good enough for Israel and for God's people, and they wanted a human king. They wanted a king that they could touch, and they could hear, and they could see, and, and they could be like the other nations who had a king. And, and, and so they went out, and they found some guy who was really tall and good-looking and who could wield a sword well and who was strong and who was a good leader. And they found this guy named Saul, and, and they came to the prophet, and they said, hey, this guy's going to be our king. Let's anoint him. Let's crown him. Let's make him king. And that caused all kinds of trouble for God's people, all kinds of problems because they picked this king on their own. He was not the king their hearts actually desired. But all the while, God was at work, and he was working, preparing a young shepherd boy from a little town called Bethlehem, a boy after God's own heart who was out with the sheep fighting bears and lions. And God was preparing him to be king. And like Israel and like all people everywhere, I think we have written on the DNA of our heart the need for a king. We see this need, I think, in the way that we fight over politics because we all want a leader who can come and fix the world. We want the right leader. We think if we can get the right leader, they'll protect us. They'll unite us. They'll get rid of divisions. They'll, they'll, they'll fix the world. And so we argue over whether it'll be this candidate or that candidate who will do it. Because deep down in our hearts, we know the world is broken. We know that all of humanity has been longing for the right leader to come and fix it. I love the way C.S. Lewis says this. And basically, if C.S. Lewis says it, I love it. So <sighs> he says... I believe in democracy because I believe in the fall of man, meaning I believe man is sinful and broken. I believe in democracy because I believe men are broken. I think most people, however, believe in democracy for the opposite reason. A great deal of uh, democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau, who believed in democracy because they thought mankind so wise and good that everyone deserved a share in the government. The danger of defending democracy on those grounds, however, is that they're not true. I find they're not true without looking further than myself. I don't deserve a share in governing a hen roost, much less a nation. If there could be a king who is not limited in wisdom and power and goodness and love for his subjects, then monarchy would be the best of all governments. If such a ruler could ever rise in the world with no weakness, no folly, no sin, then no wise and humble person would ever want democracy again. We gather this morning as people who believe that the universe is not hurtling toward anarchy or tyranny, but toward peace on earth and goodwill toward men under the sovereign rule of a servant king. 
a king unlike any before him and any after him, not a king of legend pulling a sword from a stone, but a king born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough. The question this morning is not do we need a king because we do. The question is not whether God broke into the universe as a king. He did. The question is, what kind of king is he? And what difference would his kingship make in your life? We've seen what it means for Jesus to be our prophet and our priest. Let's see what it means for him to be our king. Five quick reasons of why Jesus is what our hearts long for. His kingship is what our hearts long for. First, Jesus is the only king who can defeat our true enemy. He is the only king who can defeat our true enemy. We get get the first hint of this in the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You see, God was cursing the snake. You remember the snake in the garden who tempted Adam and Eve, and and God was laying out his curses, and he curses the snake. He's going to crawl on his belly for the rest of his life. And then he says that Adam's descendant, Adam and Eve is going to have a kid, their descendant, their seed, that the snake would strike his heel that this descendant would crush his head. So there's this promise from the very beginning that this one is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. The next clearest picture we get of this foreshadowing of the king is a story that all of you know, uh, have known for a long time. David and Goliath. One of my favorite stories is this story of uh, the enemies of God have come against the people of God. The, the Philistines have come against the people of God. And, and there's this hill on this side and a hill on this side, and this big valley in the middle. And the, the Philistines are on one side and they're cursing and, and, and yelling at the people of God, calling them names. And, and, they're, and they're saying, send one person to come and fight. We'll send one, you send one. And, and it was a normal thing where you would send one person from each army. And that way the armies didn't have to fight, but whoever won this one-on-one battle would win the, would win the war win the whole battle. And so the Philistines send Goliath, and here is Goliath standing, chanting, taunting the people of God. So Goliath represents the enemies of God. And it's interesting because Goliath, the Bible goes into great detail to explain in detail his armor. And if you notice, his armor is built from the skin of a snake. Not a coincidence. As Goliath stands as the descendant of the enemies of God, that ancient serpent, and he stands there in in the shoes of the serpent as the enemies of God, chanting and railing against the people of God. And the interesting thing is all of Israel on the other side of the hill, listening to these taunts, are trembling in their boots. They have the God of the universe on their side, and no one will go and fight. No one will stand against the enemies of God for God's people. Not even King Saul would put on his armor and go and fight for his people. And so they stood out there for 40 days, and eventually David, this little little, uh, shepherd from Bethlehem, comes to bring some food to his brothers, and he sees what is happening, and he's like, no one will go fight? And he goes, He goes to fight Goliath, and you know the story. He doesn't take a sword. He doesn't take an armor. It takes a slingshot, not one of these things, one of these things, right? He goes down there, and he risks his life to slay the enemies of God. And he puts a stone right in Goliath's forehead, and then he goes and takes the sword off of him and cuts his head off. You see, this is not a story 
to show you how to be brave. This is not a story to show you how to face your giants when times are hard. It is not a story about how you have faith against the giants in your life. That is not what this story is about. This is the story of a boy who one chapter beforehand was visited by the prophet who poured oil over his head and anointed him king. And now you have the king of Israel, the rightful king of Israel, facing down the enemies of God on behalf of his people. This is not a story about how we face our giants. It is a story about how God's king alone can defeat the enemies of God, and that victory is given to us. You see, we're like Israel. We cannot defeat our true enemy. We got a lot of enemies in our life, and there's a lot of them that we can fight, but our true enemy, the thing that really threatens you, you have no power against. No sword can slay it. No army can defeat it. Our truest enemy is death. Our truest enemy is sin and the devil. And no weapon that you wield can ever defeat him. And so what we need is a king who would come to fight on our behalf. And if that's exactly what we get, we get a king who would come to defeat the enemies of God, that ancient serpent in the garden. But he defeats him, not by lifting a sword. He defeats him not like David by risking his life. He slays this ancient dragon by giving his life. This king would come not just risking his life to slay a dragon, but giving his life. And only in giving his life would he take the penalty of sin and defeat it. And only in raising from the dead can he reverse death and defeat death. And only in this king can we have victory over the enemies that we have no weapon against. That is the kind of king we have in Jesus, one who comes to defeat our true enemy. Jesus is the king we needed and the only king who could destroy our true enemy. The second thing we need to see is that Jesus is the only king who can represent us. Now, what do I mean by that? This, this one is hard, I think, for us to understand sometimes because we have such a Western culture mindset, okay? Because we think, we think in such individualistic terms, we think so individualistically, but throughout the Old Testament, they didn't think individually. You see, one person could represent many people. Let me give you an example. In, in the Old Testament, there's a story in, uh, where uh, the Israelites are going to go take out Jericho. You remember the story? They march around Jericho, and it falls, and they're going to take him out. And God tells them, when you take out Jericho, you're not allowed to take any of their gold or possessions. You can't take any of it. But there's this one guy named Achan. They go and defeat him, and he takes a little bit for himself. And the next time they go to fight the next battle, that, which they should have really won, to demolish these people, <coughs> they get destroyed. Then they realize that Achan had disobeyed God, and he had taken what he wasn't supposed to take. And do you know what they did? They didn't just punish him. They killed him. They killed his whole family. They killed all of his animals. They killed all of his property, and they burnt him and buried him under a bunch of rocks because of his sin, it went out to everyone else. 
Let me give you a bigger example. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, he did not just sin for himself. He sinned on your behalf. Adam stood in the garden representing all of humanity. And so when Adam fell to temptation and sinned, it's as if you sinned and I sinned as well. Not that this is possible, but imagine with me for a moment that you could live your life without ever sinning. None of you could do it, least of all me. But imagine you could. Even if you could go your whole life with it, not sinning one time, do you know that you would still be found guilty before God because you stand in Adam as your father? He represented all of humanity in the garden, and we are guilty first and foremost in him. He was our representative. This was also true for every king throughout Israel's history. Whenever uh, the king of Israel was righteous, God viewed the people of God as righteous. But whenever the king of Israel was wicked, God viewed all of Israel as wicked. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see, while the best kings of Israel could have come and had a, 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 a little bit of righteousness, had a, a, a taste of righteousness, it was never enough to make us truly righteous before God. But when Jesus comes as our king, he is tempted in the, in the wilderness for 40 days and he doesn't sin. He is, he is tempted to sin when he is being beaten and, and killed and, and tortured and he's innocent, and he's tempted to speak against him, and he doesn't. Jesus always obeyed his mom and dad. He never gossiped. He never lost. He always perfectly obeyed. He was perfect. And do you understand what this means? When you make Jesus your king, his righteousness becomes your righteousness. If Adam, what we were born as Adam, as our father, represented us in the garden, when we come to Christ as our king, he becomes our new representative. And he stands for us. And his righteousness and goodness and perfection is given to us as if we did it ourselves. Not only does God forgive you of your sin when Christ pays the payment on the cross, not only does he wipe the debt clean, but he gives you positive righteousness because Jesus actively lived for you, represented you, and stands on your behalf. See, Jesus is the second Adam. He is the only king who could ever be righteous for you, and he did. So when you make him your king, not only does God look at you as forgiven, he doesn't look at you and just see this sinner who happened to be forgiven. He sees you as perfectly righteous, as if you've always obeyed him. That is the kind of king we have in Jesus. Third, the book of Revelation is, without a doubt, the most confusing, complicated, hard-to-understand book in the entire Bible. Amen? But it's a book that its bookends are quite clear. It opens up with a vision of Jesus looking like the king he is. Describing him with hair white as snow, eyes like fire, feet like burnished bronze, voice like a rushing river, clothed in a wrong, long robe with a golden sash across his chest. It begins with this vision of Jesus as king, as the Alpha and Omega. And it ends 
with his mission being fulfilled in a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus said, I have come to make all things new. Notice what he did not say. He did not say, I have come to make all new things. He said, I have come to make all things new. It is not as if Jesus' mission as king is to throw away the world he created and start fresh. No. He's come to redeem and make all broken things new again. And he will make this world what it was always meant to be. He will take everything that is broken and make it whole, set it right. The first step of this project, this new heavens and new earth, new creation project began when Jesus raised himself from the dead. In his own body, he lay in a tomb, body broken, torn, lifeless, but he made himself new. He did not give himself a new body. He did not come as a spirit. He was raised from the dead. His old body made perfect, perfectly healed, no longer susceptible to age or disease or hunger. His old body had been made new. We were reminded of this truth this week, many of us, as we had been praying for Wally Bartlett to recover from his ailments as he lay in the hospital. And the Lord chose not to answer our prayers, but chose for Wally to come meet with Jesus. And so as we had his funeral this week, and as we laid Wally's body in the ground, we read 1 Corinthians 15, and reminded us that Christians for centuries buried their dead for a specific reason, because we believe they are not done with that body. But they are awaiting a day when Jesus will walk up to their grave and command them to live again. That the king who commands every molecule and atom will command the dead heart to beat again, for lungs to breathe again, for life to reanimate what was once dead and make it new. And that was our hope for Wally this week. It is the hope for me. It is the hope for you if you've trusted in Christ that he will command the world to be made new and what a sight to behold that will be when we stand to look at the world we've lived in our whole life but yet not recognize it because it has been made what it was always meant to be. Jesus is the only king who can make all things new. He can command it, and it happened. When that day comes when Jesus makes all things new, what will our place be in this kingdom? Will we merely be servants to scrub the floor? Will we merely be the ones to join the giant choir and sing forever? Sounds boring. What will our role be? Romans 8, as many other passages, makes it clear. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've re received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now listen to this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Few things paint a better picture of this than Narnia. 
Amen? Sorry, I can't help myself. Four children are whisked into a magical land through a wardrobe in which it's always winter and never Christmas because of a wicked white witch. And all of the people and the animals that they meet tell them that when the king comes, when Aslan comes, it will be spring again and the white witch will be defeated. And throughout the movie, throughout the book, they defeat the white witch. It is spring again, but at the end, they don't just go back home. But the king of the world, the creator of Narnia, Aslan, goes to Camp Caravel, the, the city, the, the what he, palace, and he crowns these four children kings and queens over Narnia to reign and rule under him as long as they live. You see, our king, Jesus, does not save us in order to make us slaves. He saves us to make us brothers and sisters, to make us heirs to the throne with him, kings and queens. Jesus is not the kind of king who is threatened by losing his power. Jesus is not the kind of king uh, who is worried that you might usurp him. He is the kind of king who shares his thrones with those he has made his family and me. In the beginning, they tried this with Adam and Eve as Adam and Eve were called by God to take dominion of the earth, to be vice regents, to be kings and queens, to rule over the earth on God's behalf, but it failed because they rebelled and wanted to be their own sovereigns. But Jesus did not give up on us. And now when he redeems us, it will be such a full and complete redemption that we will reign with Christ over the cosmos forever, never challenging his supremacy nor wanting our own, but content to rule under the sovereign care of our servant king. Only in Jesus would we ever find a king who would share his throne and make us heirs to it with him. One of, my, one of my favorite uh, Disney movies is Aladdin. And I love the song and the scene, uh, particularly in the new live action, don't shoot me, um, where he comes into Agrabah for the first time as Prince Ali. And you know, he's been made this prince and he's put on this big show and there's this music and there are elephants and there are peacocks and there are all these animals running around. And um, y'all wanna sing it? No, let's not sing it. And they sing this big song, right? And it's, it's, it's fun and exciting. The genie is everywhere. And there's just all of this hubble up, people throwing swords and everywhere. And here is this fake prince. And you would expect, you would expect we would find that when our king, who has come to conquer our worst enemies, who can represent us in righteousness, who is making the world new and who will share his throne, when this kind of king comes, a king of kings and a lord of lords, that his birth would rival Prince Ali's entry celebration, a birth that would have lights and it would have the nicest of palaces and nicest of gifts and world leaders from around the globe would come and worship him. But instead we find our king not born with lights and fireworks, but born in a stable with animals and placed in their feeding trough because there was no room for him in the inn. 
We find Jesus to be a humble king, one who is not concerned with grabbing power and influence, one who is not concerned with money and wealth, one who is not trying to cover up his scandals and just tell us what we want to hear, but a king who chose to be born in obscurity. A king who chose to be born in obscurity, who lives most of his life as a carpenter's son who ministers to the sick and the dying, to the prostitutes and the sinners and the tax collectors who everyone else despised. We find a king who came not for himself, but for us. A king who was not ashamed to call us brothers. He is the only king we can fully trust with our hearts and our lives, even our souls, but we can trust him. And so when he calls you to follow him as your king, you can have confidence that wherever he leads will be good and you can run after him for he is an all wise king who will call you to do things you don't quite understand at times, but he knows what he's doing. After all, who would have thought that dying on a cross could save the whole world? We find in Jesus the only king worth our allegiance. Arthurian legend tells us that at any time, King Arthur might return to reclaim his throne. But that's just a legend. That's just a fairy tale, a myth. But in reality, Jesus is the once and future king. And so we should stand looking to the clouds because our true king will return to reclaim his throne and his people at any moment. He will return riding on a white horse as the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, born in a manger, but now reigning with all power and glory and majesty forever and ever. Amen. Jesus, our once and future king, may we give all our allegiance and service to him and him alone, the king we need. Pray. Father, You have sent a king to slay dragons, to slay this ancient serpent, to rescue a princess, to rescue your bride, to make us whole, to set the world right again. Our hearts have longed for centuries for a ruler to come who could do such a task. And you have sent one, ancient and strong, who would crush the head of this ancient serpent, who would unite us, who would free us, who would represent us. Jesus, you are the only king worth following. And I pray this morning that if anyone in this room has not made you their king and savior, this morning they would bow their knees in humble submission to the king of kings. This morning that they can come because your arms are open, accepting and receiving all who would come and believe and repent and turn from their sin. You've never called us to be perfect because you knew we couldn't, so you sent your son to be perfect for us. So Father, we stand here this morning as a people as a people who are not worried that the world is going to spiral out into tyranny or into anarchy, 
but a world that a king is fashioning of peace on earth and goodwill toward men, a king born in a manger, but who now reigns on a throne. You, Jesus, are our king and no one else. We give our hearts and our minds and our allegiance to you and you alone. Would you command us and would you give us the strength to follow, submit, to obey? God, this morning, if there's someone here who needs to pray, who's been going through a difficult time in this difficult season, there's someone here who needs to, needs to give their life to you. There's gonna be people up here at the front. I wanna challenge you to come and let us help you. Let us be there. Let us walk with you. We're all in the same boat, like the Israelites up on the hill, trembling in our boots, unable to fight our truest enemies, and the king of kings has come and slayed him on our behalf. And so we look to that king and that king alone for hope. And if he's not your king, let us show you how to look to him and make him such. We'll be up here. God, give us strength to celebrate this Christmas season. Help us to follow you with whatever you would obey us to do. We pray these things in Christ's name. All those people said,